Root Simple Podcast. Low tech, home tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 13, I interview Ernest Miller about pressure canning. Ernie is a chef, historian, educator, consultant, and speaker who teaches classes in museums, schools, and kitchens throughout Southern California. He has been cooking farmers' market fresh produce for nearly a decade. He is a certified sommelier and master food preserver. He is a co-leader of Slow Food Los Angeles. He is a founder of Rancho La Merced Provisions, LLC, a producer of preserved foods and preservation equipment. Welcome, Ernie, to the Root Simple Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I love your uh, blog, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to participating in your podcast. Well, the admiration is mutual. Um, I had the pleasure of taking the Master Food Preserver class myself, and it was really, really an amazing experience. And I'm on the call, too, and I'm not a Master Food Preserver, so I'm here to uh, be the voice of ignorance, <laughs> which, which is a role I enjoy. Well, I'm the voice of ignorance, too, because I haven't done a lot of pressure canning myself. Well, I guess we should start out uh, and say the topic today is pressure canning. And Ernie, what what is pressure canning, and what are the kind of foods that you pressure you as a pressure can for? Well, uh, I'd like to say that uh, pressure canning, I think, is in many ways the most important type of canning. And uh, four out of five times when I'm canning at home, I'm pressure canning. Uh, and the reason for this uh, is that we're all familiar with water bath canning, uh, and that's what we use for high acid foods things like jams and jellies, sweet spreads, fruit, uh, which are not naturally high in acid, or for things like pickles, where the vegetable, such as a cucumber or winter squash, isn't naturally high in acid, but we add acid through the use of vinegar or other acids, uh, which makes them safe for water bath canning. Now, some foods which are low acid, such as meats, uh, vegetables, uh, and to which we don't want to pickle, um, then we need to pressure can. And the reason we pressure can uh, is because by increasing the atmospheric pressure inside the vessel, we increase the boiling temperature of water uh, to a known temperature. Uh, and this is very important because when you're dealing with low acid canned foods, botulism is a big concern. Uh, botulism is a terribly deadly toxin. Uh, it's the most deadly toxin known to man, actually. Uh, uh, it, a, a single quart would be enough to kill every man, woman, and child on the planet if properly spread around. Uh, so we want to destroy the toxin, and the only way to do this is because it has spores, which are very tough to destroy. We have to increase the boiling temperature of the water to, to a high level uh, and keep it there for a significant period of time in order to destroy those spores and then make our canned foods safe. So uh, the things I like to can at home, uh, I can meats, I can a lot of beans, uh, I can my tomatoes with a pressure canner, although you can use water bath for, for tomatoes as well. And I can soups, stocks, and chili beans, one of my favorites, because that's an instant meal. I just crack it open, heat it up, and I'm ready to eat. With that, with that list there, I noticed you mentioned tomatoes. Do you prefer canning tomatoes in a pressure canner versus a hot water bath? What's, what's your ideas on that? I absolutely do prefer uh, canning with a pressure canner. 
uh, even with all the additional time required with the pressure canner, venting it for 10 minutes, bringing it at the pressure, holding it at the temperature, uh, at the pressure, it actually turns out to be faster for me uh, because my uh, pressure canner can hold 18 pints of tomatoes at a time, uh, whereas with the conventional boiling water bath, you know, I'm lucky, lucky to get six or eight. And the time for boiling water bath for tomato products uh, can be significant, 45 minutes, 50 minutes, uh, even 85 minutes for certain products. Whereas with the pressure canner, uh, generally you're holding at pressure for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, so I actually get higher throughput by pressure canning my tomatoes. Uh, and you get a slightly uh, higher quality product. It's not, uh, the, the quality difference isn't uh, substantial enough to be the only deciding factor, but you do get a slightly higher quality with pressure canning as well. Is there a specific brand or type of pressure canner that you recommend people look into? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is that uh, you shouldn't go with the used pressure canner that you find at the local swap meet or yard sale or something. You don't know how it's been used. Uh, you don't know if, it's going to, uh, if, if everything's going to be perfectly fine with it. Uh, so I generally recommend getting a, a new pressure canner or one that you're very certain of the provenance. The other thing is to make sure that it is a pressure canner, not a pressure cooker. All pressure canners can be used as pressure cookers, but not all cookers can be used as canners. So that's something. And I've sometimes seen them advertised. I've seen pressure cookers advertised in the newspaper uh, with canning equipment, um, which you're not supposed to use them that way. The other thing is you want to make sure that it's UL listed. Sometimes some of the cheap imports are not UL listed. If it's not UL listed, I wouldn't trust it. Beyond that, um, then you're just basically depending on how much you intend to use it uh, and your, uh, you know, how much you can afford. You can get an inexpensive but very fine quality pressure canner for about $70 to $80 for a small one. Usually those are Presto canners. Uh, Presto uh, is a very reliable name in pressure canners. They are the oldest manufacturer of pressure canners in the United States. At a higher price point, but one that I find more efficient and effective for my own use, since I do so much pressure canning, uh, is uh, the All-American canner. Um, I use the 21 and a half quart, uh, which will do to 18 pints or seven quarts. And depending on how much you, you can get a slightly smaller one, or they, they get a little bit larger than that. Now, some have dials and weighted gauges, and I know there's an issue with that. Some of the cheaper ones, right, only have a dial. Is that correct? Yes. Um, now, all pressure canners are going to have to have some way for you to know that they are uh, at the proper pressure. Uh, and they do this either with a dial gauge or with a weighted gauge. I highly recommend a weighted gauge canner. And the reason for this is that weighted gauges do not have to be calibrated. They're factory calibrated and will remain in calibration uh, essentially forever. Whereas a dial gauge cal um, uh, canner uh, must be recalibrated uh, every year. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, most of the canners will say, oh, just take it to your local cooperative extension. Uh, most counties don't provide this service anymore for a variety of reasons. Uh, so it can be hard to get them calibrated. You can always ship them back to the manufacturer for calibration, uh, but that's a lot of time and expense. Uh, so I definitely recommend a weighted gauge canner. Now, some weighted gauge canners also include a dial, but that dial is not uh, for calibration. Uh, but merely as a, a more a visual expression of the pressure building, the pressure releasing. So it, it, it just adds another level of, of, of knowledge to what you're doing, but it's not necessary. 
but I definitely recommend a weighted gauge canner. And some of the and cheap. It doesn't have a, and if it doesn't have a weighted gauge and it doesn't have a dial, it is not a pressure canner. It is a pressure cooker. So some of the cheaper models then have a weighted gauge. So I could get a Presto model with a weighted gauge. Yes, for about seventy to eighty dollars uh, for the for their, their smallest one. And then well, I'm I'm thinking personally here because we'd like to do some pressure canning around the house. What would be the advantage then of the all-American canner over that? Because there's a huge difference in price. The all-American canners are a couple hundred dollars. Yes. Uh, um, the difference uh, is that the all-American canner is going to be made out of cast aluminum, and uh, so it's very thick, very heavy-bodied, uh, you know, could survive the apocalypse. And it uh, uses what's called a metal-to-metal -metal, uh, seal, uh, whereas the Presto, uh, and all other canners have a rubber gasket seal, which makes a very fine seal. However, the rubber gaskets must re be replaced anytime they get a crack in them or on a yearly basis. And depending on how much you use them, uh, you know, you may be needing to replace the gaskets uh, more frequently. With an All-American that has the metal-to-metal -metal seal, uh, there's no gasket to ever replace. And so uh, that's uh, uh, one advantage. Uh, and again, because the it's it's uh, mold it's cast aluminum, uh, the things about half an inch thick aluminum, uh, it's super heavy duty. Oh, so it sounds like the All American might be the better long term investment. Particularly, um, I don't know how much the gaskets cost, but that could add up over a few years and get you up to the same price point anyway. It would probably take several years, but absolutely. I mean, you know, finding the gaskets, either going to pick them up or ordering them online and I would generally order them online from the manufacturer so you know that you're getting a fresh gasket. I've been into hardware stores that sell pressure canners and I've seen gaskets on the shelves covered with, you know, quarter inch of dust. Uh, and, you know, rubber does degrade over time. So even if you buy one at the local hardware store, you know, it's, it's been sitting there for several years. It's, it's not going to be any good. Well, I think we need to go back to the topic of botulism because we had quite a few reader or listener questions about about botulism. Uh, Donna asks, uh, what are the actual statistics on home canning-related deaths in this country? I understand botulism is a serious risk, but so is driving a car. And we do have firm statistics on that risk and yet continue to drive cars all the time. I feel that the advertised risk of home canning are overinflated, but would need to see the data to know for sure. Any thoughts on that? Okay. Uh, well, we in this country, we average about 20 to 30 cases of botulism a year. Uh, most of those cases are related to uh, home canning, uh, although on occasion restaurants do stupid things. Now, the uh, death rate for botulism now in the United States, when it's identified, uh, is about 3%, uh, which is a huge improvement from you know the 1950s when it was more than 50%. We now have very good antitoxin. So if we're able to identify botulism, then they can get you the antitoxin, and you'll live. Uh, you may have to go through speech therapy and other forms of therapy and may have permanent nerve damage, but you'll live. Uh, on the other hand, we must be very concerned uh, with uh, the elderly, with uh, immunocompromised and young children uh, whose bodies can very easily be overcome by botulism. The death rate for botulism uh, for infants uh, remains above 50%. Uh, there's several reasons for this. Uh, number one, the obvious symptoms of botulism and adults can explain to you, um, for example, um, droopy eyes and slurred speech. Infants are always droopy eyed 
and they're not talking yet, so you can't tell that their speech is slurred. I think in the course of the class, one of the things for me was just hearing a description of the symptoms of botulism and then the fact that, as you said, there are long-term consequences for it. It's not something that you just get over and you're okay. Yeah, I want to hear more about that here as the voice of you ignorance. Want, you want I the didn't know details. that until this moment. I didn't know that slurred speech and droopy eyes were a symptom of botulism. I always just assumed botulism was like a really bad food poisoning, I guess, but it's not. It's a it's a nerve And then there's toxin. permanent damage. That's that's the thing or long-term damage. So perhaps Ernie could yeah. explain the symptoms of botulism a little bit more. Yeah, so so botulism is actually a bacteria. Um, and the bacteria itself is harmless, but it creates a neurotoxin, a protein, uh, that is the deadliest neurotoxin known to man, unless they've got some secret stuff in some chemistry lab somewhere, which I certainly hope not, because um, a quarter of the stuff will be enough to kill every man, woman, and child if properly dispersed. Uh, it is incredibly deadly. The uh, initial symptoms of botulism are flu-like, and of course nobody goes to the doctor for the flu. They see whether or not it's going to get worse or something. Uh, and then what it begins to do is begins to paralyze you from the head down. So uh, you get a tingly sensation in the scalp. Uh, you begin to get paralyzed. Uh, this is going to cause your, your eyelids and stuff to become droopy. Uh, as the paralytic poison gets lower, uh, it will begin to affect your vocal cords, uh, resulting in slurred speech. Uh, of course, you never have to worry about losing the ability to walk or anything with botulism because by the time it gets to your lungs and heart, um, you're dead. <laughs> well, that's a comfort. Uh, yeah, so, so you got that going for you. It can kill in a matter of um, days. You know, and uh, once again, uh, this is uh, neurotoxin nerve damage. So there are permanent uh, damage, even if they, they figure it out and they get you the antitoxin and save your life. Uh, you're going to have to get speech therapy. Uh, you may have to uh, have other therapy in order to, to recover, and you may never fully recover from botulism poisoning. Uh, poisoning. Uh, on the one hand, uh, you know they have to identify it. Uh, there was a case uh, a year ago of a man uh, who had improperly canned venison that he had hunted, um, and he forgot to mention to the doctor that he'd been eating his canned venison. So they were baffled, and he, he came within 24 hours of dying before another family member mentioned to the doctor that he was a home canner as well. And they said, boom, his botulism saved his life, but he came very close to dying. I have a question. Do you, can you get botulism from your water bath jelly or your water bath tomatoes, those acidic foods that uh, water bath canners tend to make? No, not if you're using uh, approved recipes from the USDA or from a reliable source, such as um, the Ball Company. Let's talk now, about... Botulism, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Um, ...requires several uh, conditions in order to grow. First, it must grow in an anaerobic environment. So a vacuum-sealed jar is an anaerobic environment. It grows at room temperature. It will not grow below 37 degrees Fahrenheit, so you don't have to worry about botulism for things in the freezer, uh, although it could grow very slowly in a refrigerator set to, say, 41 degrees. But the most important thing about botulism is that it will not grow in an acidic environment. Um, it will not grow in any environment in which the, the pH is 4.6 or lower. Uh, pH is our measure of acidity, 7.0 being water. Anything below 7.0 is acidic. And so anything below 4.6 on the pH scale, uh, botulism will not grow. Most jams and jellies are going to be in the 3 range. 
and then, of course, when we make pickles with vinegar, then we're going to have a high enough acidity from the vinegar to prevent the growth of botulism. But you have to use a tested and approved recipe. Uh, some people make very lightly acidic pickles, and you may not be adding enough acid to these lightly acidic pickles to be safely canned. Or uh, people want to play with different recipes, uh, for example, persimmons. Persimmons are not acidic enough to be safely home canned, but I do see recipes on the Internet for canning home persimmons. And this is dangerous because it's not going to be acidic enough. Tomatoes are a special case. Most tomatoes are going to be acidic enough for safe home canning, uh, but for uh, out of a precaution, uh, the USDA does recommend adding acid to home canned tomatoes in order to ensure they're safe because there are certain varieties, uh, such as Japanese Momotoro uh, tomatoes, which are not acidic enough for safe home canning. Uh, and there are different things that can happen to the tomato on the vine during the growth cycle that might make them uh, normally would be fine but uh, can lose their acidity. So, for example, we're going to add citric acid, uh, lemon juice, or even vinegar to our canned tomatoes according to the USDA guidelines in order to ensure that they're safe for home canning. There is no way to correct for botulism. Like, you know, you can't cook it off. Like if you had some chili, uh, canned chili, and you and you cooked it for... So on the, the stove for a long on the stove top. I don't mean in the can. After it's been after canned, after, right. after it's been canned, you open it up and you can you can't cook off the botulism or freeze out the botulism toxin or anything like that. It's it's just in there once it's there. Is that right? Well, that's 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 not that's actually not true. Oh, you can um, cook it off. You can you can cook it off, um, but why take the risk? Mm -hmm. I mean, suspect that there's botulism there. Uh, the best thing is to dispose of it. Uh, and, and dispose of it in such a way that, for example, your pets and stuff cannot get to it to ensure that. Um, I, but, yes, boiling will destroy the botulism toxin. But if you suspect there's botulism, I wouldn't bother taking the risk. But uh, you would never suspect, right, because it's, it's invisible. There's no, there's no sign right. of it, right? Yeah, it's so, invisible, odorless, and flavorless. Right. So um, it's only via you knowing, you know, I think this is a low-acid food that I canned incorrectly. It's your own suspicions about the provenance of the canning. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if you, if, you want to, if you want to take a precaution, then boiling um, for 10 minutes uh, should destroy the botulism toxin. But again, if I had my suspicions, I, I wouldn't even bother with it. Let's back up for a second. You mentioned tested recipes. What is a tested recipe? Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture um, has done a lot of scientific research on uh, safe canning processes. Uh, I mean, the interesting thing to note is that canning was invented in 1810, but it wasn't until the 1870s that they actually figured out why it worked. And they didn't actually figure out the botulism question until the early 20th century. Human beings are very prone to do stuff that works most of the time. Every once in a while it goes wrong. We're not really sure why, but most of the time it works, so we'll stick with it. But the USDA has done extensive testing uh, to determine the safe processing times for acidified foods, uh, for water bath canning, uh, and for pressure canning. So to ensure that we get proper heat penetration uh, for a long enough time to destroy the botulism spores so that botulism isn't a problem. Now, uh, there are various places for these reputable recipes. The number one would be the uh, USDA Guide to Home Canning. Uh, but the USDA has also spent a lot of money with the University of Georgia, which is home to the National Center for Home Food Preservation. 
uh, and they produce uh, what is considered the Bible of home food preservation for uh, USDA guidelines, which is the book So Easy to Preserve. Uh, and all this information is available freely on the web um, at the University of Georgia website, the National Center for Home Food Preservation. They also have a link to the USDA Guide to Home Canning. Uh, and these are tested and approved recipes. And if you follow these recipes, uh, then safety is assured. Uh, now, other companies who are involved in uh, the canning business, such as Ball, um, also provide a lot of recipes. And these recipes are also uh, properly tested. Uh, you can find those at freshpreserving.com for the Ball company. Uh, and, of course, they have their Ball Blue Book and Ball Complete Book of Food Preservation and, uh, and a variety of cooperative extensions uh, have done testing for various different products. For example, there's a lot of fish canning recipes um, from the University of Alaska, since for, they have a lot of fish. We'll have a link to those resources in the show notes. Well, speaking of botulism and tested recipes, we, we did get a lot of questions about changing tested recipes. And the first two are kind of similar, so I'm just going to read them together, and you can answer them together. Paula asks... What's a good rule of thumb for pressure canning something you can't find in a book? And Donna says, is there reliable information available if I wanted to develop to develop my own canning recipe, assuming I can accurately measure acidity and am willing to take responsibility for my actions? As a DIYer, it's always a little annoying to be told, do it my way and don't worry your pretty little head about it. Is it really not possible to do recipe development safely with home-based technology? Well, uh, it is possible to do recipe development with home-based technology, but you want to make sure that you're following uh, an approved testing regime. Uh, unfortunately, following access for that can be somewhat difficult. As for things that are not available in the you know, books, uh, there are a few things that, that are not available. We're, we're seeking uh, funds to get more testing done on on. Uh, items which were very uncommon but now are, are, are more available in the, the supermarkets and farmers markets. And there is an extensive list of the pH ranges for various foods, so something of the same density and pH. Uh, you can generally find uh, a you know, substitute recipe. But there are, are items that we, we don't have properly tested recipes for yet. Is density and acidity, are those the two main factors that you're, that you're looking at when you're pressure canning? Or if you're trying to do uh, an equivalency, like say you're working with some sort of odd Asian squash that you found at your local market instead of a butternut, which you have a recipe for. Like if, if you're saying, if you think that the acidity and the, well, you know, let's say you have a way of figuring this out, you, you actually test the acidity and the density is the same, then is that an equivalency at that point? That's the kind of thing I think Donna would like to know. Uh, yeah, that's going to be very close. And, and for most things... Uh, slight variations in the species. So, example, uh, winter squash. Uh, if it's a butternut squash or it's a pumpkin or it's a kabocha, those are all functionally the same, and, and you can substitute those uh, in recipes. For the most part, most of your winter squashes are going to be have, have essentially the same characteristics. So even though the recipe might say pumpkin and butternut, you know, a kabocha squash is not going to change the recipe substantially. Mm -hmm. But acidity and density are uh, two of the key factors. Uh, in it, so if if you if you know uh, that the the appropriate pH of the fruit, and you know it's a essential density, uh, then uh, you can uh, generally substitute it. 
That actually brings up our Eric and I. We had a marital spat actually over <laughs> how to change. Well, well, about, about vegetable broth. That's vegetable the kind broth. of thing that we have marital spats over. I realized I use a lot of vegetable broth in cooking. We don't have a pressure canner, and I realized wouldn't my life be a lot easier if I had a row of vegetable broth, uh, vegetable broth jars on my shelf? We're we're mostly vegetarian. That's why I say vegetable broth. And so I said to Eric, my live-in master food preserver, I'm like, I've got, I want to, you know, maybe we can borrow a pressure canner and make some broth. And I looked at the, he's like, well, you have to use a tested recipe. And so I looked at the tested recipe and I didn't like it. And it's not how I make vegetable broth. And I said to him, well, you know, it's a strained aromatic liquid. It has no ingredients in it to affect density. What what does it matter whether or not there's turnips in it or you know originally or whatever as long as it's a clear aromatic broth at the end isn't the timing the same and isn't that all that matters and he refused to admit that <laughs> and I thought my logic should triumph and he thought his rules should triumph and you know nothing came of it so <laughs> now we turn to you for marital counseling. <laughs> Well, in the case in the case of a vegetable broth, um, or if chicken stock, or or you know the, these other uh, stocks, um, uh, then yes, uh, it really doesn't matter what goes in them, um, because it is just going to be uh, a flavorful aromatic liquid. Uh, and if you follow the pressure canning guidelines for that flavorful aromatic liquid, then it'll be fine. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, that, this whole call was basically an excuse to, to get to, that. To settle that out. <laughs> um, uh, Ernie, have you heard of anyone successfully canning uh, dashi? No, I haven't. I usually make my dashi to order. Yeah. I mean, uh, it has such delicate uh, aromatics that I would be worried that they would be lost in the canning process. Mm. But so often I'm doing something and I just need a spoonful and I don't want to make it from scratch. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, well, that's interesting. But it, dashi, for instance, would be canned. Like if that, here we go. <laughs> so Kelly thinks, oh, I want to can some dashi. Could I use a vegetable broth uh, timing on that and assume that the ingredients in dashi are equivalencies? No. Oh, because of the fish? Uh, because of the fish. Mm. Would if I use it? If you wanted to add some combo to your vegetable stock, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, umami, mm -hmm. uh, I uh, uh, that shouldn't be an issue, but because you're using a protein, a fish. Oh, it's the protein. Uh, um, then, for example, I mean, the pressure canning time for a chicken stock is longer than the pressure canning time for a vegetable stock. And a uh, fish stock. Protein in there. Yeah. Even though you might just be using a mere poire for your vegetable stock, everything's the same except you know those chicken bones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but the timing is going to be different. Um, so, uh, number one, I would first look up uh, canning a fish stock, and basically, I, I would imagine that Bonito is a fish stock, uh, and and use those times. Thank you. Related to that, actually, one of our listeners, Ruben, asks. Uh, he says, "I pressure canned a salsa recipe variation by using time for the most dangerous ingredient, which was, I think, onions. Is this legit?" Generally, yes. Uh, as uh, you're basing it on a, a basic recipe, you're modifying the recipe, and if you use the pressure can the, the pressure canning time for the ingredient with the longest pressure canning time, uh, then generally you're safe. Uh, as long as you're following the other rules of pressure canning, you know, such as not you know canning purees, not canning uh, with you know flour and rice and other uh, starchy ingredients, etc. 
and Ruben actually asks a follow-up to that, which which is why can't I just pressure can for two hours and nuke everything? <laughs> you know, just skip the timing questions altogether. <laughs> like, why can't we just put everything in for a long time? Uh, well, I mean, you certainly can. It may affect the quality of, of the products. Uh, and then again, there are aspects of, of canning that, you know, where we don't know the density, so we don't uh, recommend canning purees. Uh, you know, no canning of, you know, pumpkin butter. Mm-hmm. for example, or pumpkin puree. Um, even though that you can buy these in the stores, they're industrial can, they have more quality control and temperature and pressure controls than, than the home canner does, so they're able to uh, ensure the safety of the product. We, we don't have those same controls at home, so we can't guarantee that they're safe. Uh, but again, I think uh, the reason is, you know, even if you pressure can it for two hours and nuke everything, um, there are certain products where we're just not sure that's going to be sufficient. And one last question on variations. Gloria asks, I also pressure can green beans and corn kernels in a separate in separate pint jars. Are beans more acidic that they need only 20 minutes over corn, which needs 50 minutes? Any way to speed up the corn without altering the flavor? No, and the reason the corn needs to be processed longer is because corn is a much more starchy product, and so the density and heat penetration uh, is going to have a very different effect than in the green beans, which are much less starchy. Um, so it doesn't have to do with the acidity of the product. It has to do with the density and, and starchiness of it and ensuring proper heat penetration. So uh, no, there's no way to speed it up. Simple answer to that one. We had a couple of questions about the mechanics of canning stoves and equipment. Lisa asks, I understand why you can't use water a water bath for low-acid foods, but can I use a pressure canner instead of a water bath for jams and high-acid foods? Uh, you can, but it's not recommended. The higher temperature uh, is going to have a, a serious effect on the quality uh, of the product, uh, and so it, it's not recommended. Yeah, certainly if you're doing like pickles and stuff like that, you're going to turn the darn things to mush. Yeah, you have a slurry inedible slurry. Brad asks, pressure canning outside. I know it is difficult making sure burners are not too hot, creating effective windscreens, etc., but can be done, right? What else do we need to consider uh, if we plan to pressure can outside? Well, I think those are the, the, the major concerns. You know, effective windscreens, you don't want a, a breeze on the darn thing. And many outdoor burners are, are very high powered. People think that uh, pressure canning, you know, because it's such big, heavy equipment, particularly like an all-American canner, thick aluminum, that it, it, it requires more energy. When in fact, uh, pressure canning requires less energy and less BTUs than uh, water bath canning, uh, because you're using much less water. You're you're enclosing it with the top, holding in all that energy. So it actually requires less energy, uh, and it is possible on you know some of those outdoor burners if you're using you know some sort of turkey fryer or something like that that you can actually melt your pressure canner. Oh, that would be an expensive mistake. Um, we had two readers, and you've already actually mentioned this, but I think it's worth repeating. Two readers asked if it's okay to can in a pressure cooker. Uh, Practical Parsimony, one of our uh, longtime listeners and readers, says that a county agent said there is absolutely no difference except for the rack to hold the jars off the bottom of the canner. And she notes that her pressure cooker has a gauge. Yes. Uh, her county agent is incorrect. There are several differences that, that distinguish a pressure canner from a pressure cooker. Um, now, most pressure cookers are going to be using uh, a weighted gauge uh, or a dial gauge, and that dial gauge must be calibrated. The weighted gauge is calibrated uh, at the factory. 
you must be able to tell what pressure is in your pressure uh, canner. Uh, pressure cookers uh, generally are using a spring-loaded mechanism, uh, and they may be set to fairly high pressure, such as 12 PSI, 15, or have you even seen pressure cookers that claim to be reaching 17 PSI, um, which would be sufficient for canning. The only problem, however, is that uh, over time that spring will degrade, uh, and uh, there's no, no external way of knowing uh, when, uh, at what pressure your canner is, whereas both the mechanical weight and the dial gauge give you know, clear visual, and in the case of the mechanical audible uh, indication of being at the proper pressure. Uh, and again, you know, they don't, you know, you, you either recalibrate the gauge, but with the spring you can't recalibrate it, and again, you do not know what it is. The other thing is most pressure cookers are actually quite small. The minimum size that the USDA allows for pressure canners is one that will hold four quart jars. And there's a very important reason for this. During pressure canning, you're going to have a natural cool down. Unlike pressure cookers, which sometimes recommend, you know, put it under running water to depressurize it right away, uh, you're always going to let a pressure canner depressurize naturally. Uh, and this time for that temperature to drop uh, inside the pressure canner uh, um, is part of the canning process. So even though you may only be having it at pressure for, say, 30 minutes, um, the cool-off time as the pressure naturally drops is part of the safe canning process. So you never want to accelerate that. And if the pressure canner is too small, that is if it holds less than four-quart jars, uh, then it has a tendency uh, to cool off too quickly and therefore not be safe. Uh, so that, again, is another uh, important aspect uh, in pressure canning that you don't see in pressure cookers. Um, finally, of course, uh, you know, all pressure, uh, proper pressure canners should be UL listed, meaning that they're safe, so you don't have to worry about the darn things exploding all over the ceiling. Uh, now, as far as your friend who has one that has a dial gauge, if that's a calibrated dial gauge, then she may actually be having a pressure canner rather than a pressure cooker. Uh, I'll, um, although, once again, these other factors come into consideration. Uh, will her pressure cooker uh, hold four quarts, uh, four-quart jars? Uh, if not, then it is just a pressure cooker and not a pressure canner. Kyle asks, I read that you cannot safely use a pressure canner on a normal glass top range due to the range self-regulating the temperature to protect the glass from overheating. So I stuck with water bath canning and it appears to have overheated something in my range and it has to be repaired or replaced. Normally I would just repair it, but I've been pretty unimpressed with glass top electric and I'm going to try an induction range. Any idea if pressure canning works safely on an induction stove top and whether there is a pressure canner out there that is suitable? I'm not aware of a pressure canner out there that is suitable uh, for induction. Uh, obviously, for an induction range, you need a ferrous material. The all-American canner uh, is aluminum, which obviously will not work. And again, even with induction ranges, uh, you have to be careful of the same problems that you'd run into with your electric um, glass top, uh, which is that there's a certain burn surface, and the pot should not exceed the size of that, that, that surface. Otherwise, it can cause problems, which is probably what happened to your friend. Uh, the same thing can happen with induction burners. So the pot has to be the right size. So that's also going to be a challenge. Now, there are induction diffuser plates, which is basically a cast iron circle that will heat up, and then you put a normal pot on top of that. That may work or it may not. I, I don't know for, sure, for certain, but it's possible that that could work. Um, but uh, I've, I've never used an induction setup for pressure canning, and I'm not aware of one that, that's available. There are electric pressure canners out there. 
um, but obviously they're more expensive. So, Oh, that are self-contained, basically? You just plug them in the wall? Is that how that works? Yes. Um, there's a couple questions about Tatler lids. Uh, Gloria says she has about a 40% failure rate when using Tatler rids, lids. She asks, am I the only one who can't do it right? Is there a real secret to put, putting the ring on the jar first and the lid or the videos? I guess there's some videos that show how to do this. It's driving me crazy. And um, actually moving on, Pam, Pamela asks, is trying to use WEC jars. Uh, I'm trying to use WEC jars more to avoid the plastic and difficulty with Tatler lids, but had my first WEC jar fail, failure to seal. They say they are not rated for pressure canning, but in the past I've had good luck with WEC jars pressure canning beans. I use a slightly larger headspace because with the Tatler lids, pressure canned tomatoes tend to end up two inches below the lid. Could this have been the problem? So I guess the question is both Tatler lids and WEC jars for pressure canning. Well, you know, the, the WEC jars aren't recommended for pressure canning, so I wouldn't recommend them. Can you use them? I mean, you can get away with it. You know, obviously it works sometimes, but... Uh, since they're not recommended for it, then I, I would choose not to use them. Um, as far as the Tatler lids go, um, they're they're a pain. Uh, I've I've used them. I, I find them they're much more difficult to use than the simple two-piece uh, cur or ball uh, lid. And uh, there are certain drawbacks to them. They're they're much more expensive. Um, you'd have to use them a, a lot more times. It's not clear how long the rubber gaskets are going to last. They don't actually say how long they'll, they'll last. Excuse me. Uh, and then when you open the jars, you're supposed to use, uh, you know, a butter knife, uh, which, you know, which ultimately, I think, will ultimately cut the rubber rings. And the rubber rings should be rotated in between each use. I'm not sure how I keep track of that easily uh, and conveniently. So I'm not a big fan. Uh, I, I do understand the higher failure rate. You can reduce that rate through practice and, and, and becoming more familiar with them. But still, I, I prefer the, the Kerr and, and Ball two-piece lids. Um, I understand a lot of people are concerned about the plastic, uh, but the, the ball and curl lids are, are silicon, uh, and they no longer contain BPA. There may still be some out there in a warehouse or in some store um, from a year ago that might still have the BPA, uh, but all newly manufactured lids from ball and curl are BPA-free. So if that's what the concern is, uh, which I think is the majority of the concern, then um, I wouldn't worry about it. Well, that's good news. Yeah, people need to. We need to get the word out that they're they're BPA free now, because I think that would assuage many of the the problems people are having with them. Uh, it's uh, squash time of the year. A lot you, of squash. You did out just there. talk about squash a little we bit. We did just ago, talk about but, squash, but we're going to go back to it. Uh, uh, there were two questions about squash. Uh, water bath canning puree. Uh, this is Ruben. He asks, water bath canning squash puree is verboten. How about in a pressure canner? Um, canning all purees is verboten for home canning unless it's an officially tested recipe. Um, there is a recipe for a pureed split pea soup from the Ball Corporation, but it's it's fairly watery. You know, I like a nice thick pea soup. This one uh, is a little more on the watery side, and that's important because of the density. Uh, but all purees are, are basically verboten. And Gloria asks, I don't like thick purees for pies, but I do like a thinner ready-to-eat puree for soups. Well, you kind of already answered that. Um, will that work for my pressure canner? I guess there is the, the one tested recipe. Um, are there any other thin soup recipes out there, I guess, is the question. Like a thin uh, blended soup kind yeah. of thing? Um, there are um, a couple of them, uh, not too many. On, on the other hand, um, you know, you can it as a, as a small dice or... Uh, uh, chunks 
and then when you want to eat the soup, then you just puree the, the, the canned product. Uh, and for example, uh, with canning beans, um, I love refried beans. Um, I wish I could home can refried beans, but I can't. However, I can can my pinto beans, uh, season them the way I like, uh, and then when I'm ready to eat them, then I can mash them and, and, and puree them uh, once I've opened my home, home canned beans. Uh, and it's not as convenient as having uh, a can of refried beans, but it's really not that much more trouble either. I've already saved a huge amount of time, or rather not saved, but, but time shifted by making my soup and my beans ahead of time, then that extra step of having to puree it and heat it up uh, really doesn't take that much time. And that's a good solution. But as, as, as again, as the person who's um, not very familiar with this stuff, I find it fascinating that you can safely can a jar full of chunks of squash, but you can't can a pureed jar of squash. And what is the difference between the chunks and the puree that makes the puree dangerous? Uh, the density. Uh, and getting proper heat penetration. Is it the the airspace between the chunks that allows the heat penetration to happen? Or the water space, yeah. I guess you mean. Oh, because the chunks are in water. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. Uh, we have a couple of... Uh, thank you, by the way. Yeah, There's thank so many you. questions. You're, <laughs> I hope we're not <laughs> You're kind of being of a time. champion here <laughs> with all these questions. It's almost over, but we have like a roundup of a more random general questions and probably easier questions here at the end. Gloria asked if there's a way to preserve bacon drippings. Freezing. Uh, right. That's an easy one. Rainy asked if I have always wanted to, uh, I've always wanted a way to save summer ratatouille. Ratatou <laughs> ratatouille. Ratatouille. There we go. Without ending up with mush. Um, I'm sure there isn't any guideline that's going to say it's okay to can it with a simple water bath, but will pressure canning destroy the texture? Yes, you're going to end up more with, yeah, it's going to, destroy the texture of your squash and zucchini and stuff. So, yeah. Then Katie asks about, uh, excuse me, about canning fermented foods in... Um, oh, Brian fermented like sour dills or fermented chilies. They, she says that her books she's read have made no mention of canning them and just say to refrigerate them. Uh, yes. Um, it is possible to can fermented foods. Uh, in fact... Um, I can sauerkraut um, that I make myself. The problem with it uh, is not so much a problem, uh, is that um, A, the canning process is going to kill any of the probiotics. So if you're looking for those probiotic benefits, then you're not going to get it from a canned version of it. Secondly, it will change the texture uh, and the flavor. Um, if you've ever eaten live sauerkraut and then had the canned sauerkraut that come, you know, that you buy in a supermarket out of a can, they're going to have different flavors and textures, uh, and that's unavoidable. Now, I grew up with canned sauerkraut, and it wasn't later until I was older that I was making my own homemade sauerkraut. And I love fresh homemade sauerkraut, but, you know, canned sauerkraut, uh, you know, brings back old memories and, and tastes good as well. Plus, there's a, the fact that there are many recipes for using sauerkraut that include cooking the sauerkraut anyway, so you're going to be braising the sauerkraut, uh, you know, uh, baking the sauerkraut, uh, and might as well use canned in that case since you're going to be going through these pressures. I don't recommend like buying at the store, but your own home sauerkraut. Um, and I can my sauerkraut for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, my refrigerator is full of fermented foods, and, and I need to have some that's shelf-stable that I can keep out of the refrigerator. So you definitely can can some fermented foods uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, other fermented foods I definitely would not recommend canning, although you technically can 
can them. For example, fermented kosher dill pickles. Uh, technically, you can can those, but then the quality is going to degrade significantly and they're going to become soft. So if you have beautiful fermented crispy dill pickles, refrigerate. Because if you can them, you're going to have soft, floppy, differently flavored dill pickles. But you, it technically is possible in a water bath canner because the acid level is high enough. Yeah, okay, she, yeah, she did ask about dills. She also asked about fermented chilies. Do you know anything about those in cans? Um, yes. Now, in the case of the fermented chilies, uh, once again, um, for questions of quality, I would not can the fermented chilies themselves. What I do do is I turn those fermented chilies into a hot sauce, and then I can the hot sauce. Okay, good solution. Speaking of hot sauce, someone is asking about t a tomato-based salsa. Is there a good recipe for pressure canning uh, a salsa? Well, no. He asked, uh, actually, that's not Don, Sydney's question. I'm getting that wrong. Yeah. Actually, Sydney says, how can I tell if food is acidic enough to can in a boiling water bath rather than a pressure canner? What about something like tomato-based salsa that includes beans and corn? How can I determine proper canning method and time? Uh, you'll definitely have to pressure can those. You, there are tested salsa recipes uh, for water bath canning, uh, tomato-based salsa recipes. But you want to stick very closely to those recipes because as you start adding ingredients uh, that are non-acidic, then you can make them unsafe for water bath canning. And certainly in the case of beans and corn, you definitely never want to uh, water bath can those unless it's in a pickle relish or something like that. I find that most water bath salsa recipes tend to be um, a little too acidic for my taste. I prefer the pressure canned salsa recipes. And then, of course, making uh, you know salsa fresca with fresh ingredients and then maybe adding uh, or using in, uh, your home canned salsas in a slightly different way. Uh, but again, I would go through look at pressure canning recipes for those salsas. Certainly if they contain beans and corn, definitely want to pressure can. Donna asks, I like to pressure can meats because I don't have to worry about them when the power goes out, which, does, which it does with annoying regularity around here. The Ball website and the Blue Book are a little skimpy on interesting canned meat recipes, though. Is it okay to uh, can plain chicken breasts or ground beef? Oh, I'm sorry. She's not asking, is it okay? She's saying it's okay to can them plain, beef and chicken plain. But I would really like to do something a little more adventurous and tasty. Any sources or suggestions that you would recommend, Ernie, for good recipes for meat? Well, for the most part, with canned meats, uh, the only canned meat recipes would be things like spaghetti sauces or soup recipes uh, for your can meats. Now, I do can a lot of meat myself, um, but then I, but then I um, put the creativity on what I then use the canned meat in. So, for example, my canned chicken, I just can plain, but then I can then use it uh, to make, you know, uh, chicken and dumplings, uh, chicken enchiladas, chicken soup, uh, all sorts of, uh, you know, chicken salad, uh, all sorts of different recipes uh, where I just have the plain canned chicken. Now, there are uh, you know, recipes for you know, home canned salmon and stuff where you add some spices to it. But once again, you're not going to be, it's not going to be a meal in a, in a jar so much. Um, now with, with, you know, ground beef and stuff, I do can chili. And that's one of my favorite things to can because that's an instant meal. You know, I've got my tomatoes and beans and ground beef or, or ground turkey in there. Uh, and then basically I just have to heat up the can and I'm ready, I'm ready to go. But other than that, um, I tend to just, can my meat separately and then use it in a, in a wide variety 
of, of recipes. There are, uh, you know, your imagination is the only limit on what you can do it. Our, our last guest on the podcast, Terry, who uh, runs a, a chicken, uh, sort of a chicken expert, actually. One, it's a little bit of a detour here, but since it's Terry, I thought I'd ask it. She has two hot water bath-related questions, uh, one related to making strawberry jam. She was asking if there's any reason to skim off the pink foamy stuff. Other than looks. Right. Before you no. ladle it into jars. No. Unless you're going to enter it in the county fair where they might take off points for appearance. Uh, it's an aesthetic concern only. It's not a safety issue. The foam actually tastes quite tasty. Uh, and, you know, if you're in a fancy French restaurant, you could uh, sell it as a uh, hydrocolloid, uh, <laughs> you know, pectin-based uh, foam of rice. You know, something like that. So. <laughs> She also has asked about the difference between brands of jars other than price. We kind of already went through a lot of the brands of jars. And I'm not sure exactly what she means. If, I think she just might just mean like... Between ball and She Kerr, might just mean between ball and Because it's the same Kerr. company. Is, it, is that right? Yeah, it's the same company. They're, they're actually owned by a Canadian company, I believe. Yeah, and then there's the Weck jars and things like that, which are more expensive. But um, we yeah. kind of already covered that. This is our last question, actually. I, I thank you again, Ernie, for enduring this barrage of questions so masterfully. But this is it's sort of my favorite question, one that and we it's have, not about canning at all, right? Well, it is though, <laughs> but because it's, it's, what you, it's, it's, near it's about to what our you, hearts. yeah, and what it is about canning because what do you do with the cans once you've canned them, and how do you store them? The question is finally uh, off the topic of pressure canning. A good forage, good food storage question from an LA local. I keep hearing of the cool, dry place where onions, potatoes, and other preserved foods should be stored. I've monitored several places in my home and found that dry places abound, but with the exception of the refrigerator freezer, no cool spaces. I've even looked into building a root cellar or cold pantry, which seems something less than feasible. Is the cool, dry place in L.A. Basin urban legend? <laughs> Can you suggest other strategies that provide this elusive set of storage space questions without use, using storage electricity? Storage space conditions. Conditions without using electricity. Perhaps a reference that works in our area. Hmm. Well, you know, a root cellar is different than cool, dry storage. Uh, a root cellar uh, is going to maintain a temperature of 50 degrees or below year-round, which unless you're living up in the mountains and can afford to build a basement here in California just not going to be available. Although uh, early ranchers and stuff actually you know, did do that because they had no other choice. There was no refrigeration in the 1800s. Uh, but uh, yeah, you, you know, if, you're, if your house is, you know, has some temperature control, uh, it doesn't have to be you know, 50 degrees or 60 degrees or anything like that. You generally don't want things to be getting above 90 degrees on a regular basis. We're talking about canned goods now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So... You know that anything below 90 degrees on a regular basis, and if, if the temperature spikes above 90 degrees, you know, a few days a year because it's just too crazy hot in the valley or something, that's fine. But you don't want to keep them in a garage where it's regularly above 100 degrees or something like that. Uh, that will, as long as they remain sealed, they're going to be safe, but you will have quality degradation, and you probably want to use those cans faster, uh, sooner rather than later. But you know, closet space, you know, in the house, you know, it doesn't have to be in a, a cabinet. It's it's hard to say what what the solution is, but uh, again, cool dry doesn't necessarily mean you know 60 degrees. You know, 70 or 80 degrees is fine on a regular basis. Even 90 degrees, just you don't want it generally above 90 degrees for a significant periods of time. 
Now, he also was asking, actually, he was not, we're talking about pressure canning, but he's probably not so much. But where, Ernie, do you keep onions and potatoes and your fermented foods that are supposed to be stored at cooler temperatures in the summer? Uh, well, I ferment my foods uh, in my house, uh, which is, you know, we, we, we use uh, air conditioning as, as appropriate, uh, and that is fine for fermenting them. Once they're fermented, uh, then I generally refrigerate. And what about onions and potatoes? That's why I got my, my That's a constant... That's self-serving question. It is. It's yeah. my constant frustration because there is no cool place in our house in the summer. And, you know, potatoes and onions seem to sprout instantly. You know, there's no hope of ever buying them in any kind of quantity because you know, it's pointless. And I, and I wonder, what, what, you know, what is the sensible thing to do here with, with things like that? Uh, well, I keep my onions and potatoes uh, in uh, small boxes uh, with uh, air holes in them for some circulation. I keep them a, a separate from each other um, because they will cause, uh, in proximity, they cause each other to go bad faster through release of gas. Um, and I buy small amounts. You know, I, I generally never buy more than five pounds of potatoes at a time, and that'll last me a week or two at most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I buy one or two onions at a time because I, 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 I agree. I understand that, you know, if I were to buy, you know, 10 pounds of onions, they'd go bad before I could finish them. Well, uh, we've kept you now for almost an hour, so I want to—I <laughs> really thank you, Ernie, for yeah, answering thank you very all these much. questions. We'll have to have you on again. Food preservation breaks down into so many topics. This has just been pressure canning, and there's so much more to do. Well, I encourage everybody to do it. Like I said, I think pressure canning is the most important type of canning. Uh, you know, you can only eat so many jams and jellies and pickles. And don't get me wrong, I love pickles, a pickle on every plate. <laughs> but if you uh, you know want to feed your family and, and, and have more large parts of meals prepared, then you need to go to pressure canning. If people want to find out more about what you're up to, where should they go? Uh, well, they can follow my uh, company on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash rlmprovisions. Uh, and then also keep up with the Master Food Preservers of Los Angeles, which is at facebook.com slash mfpla. Thank you again, Ernie. Yeah, thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, been an honor. Thank you. That was Ernest Miller. I was very lucky to be in a multi-week Master Food Preserver training class organized by Ernie. He's an incredible source of food preservation information, and we'll have him on this show again. I'll put a link to his company, Rancho La Merced Provisions, which produces some really nice glass fermenting vessels, in the show notes for this episode. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on rootsimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.